Thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless and true. We thank you that it can be our bed, that it that it can be and should be and must be our bedrock, that it is our foundation. We thank you for your death upon the cross and for your resurrection. We thank you that your word tells us not only about it, but all the the riches of your grace that are are available to us because of that. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time together this morning, that your word would go forth, that your spirit would go forth, that our lives would be changed today. In Jesus' name, amen. If one is going for a job interview, there are multiple articles, self-help blogs, and insights into the hiring process that help that person get a leg up on other candidates going for the same position. One major aspect of being as prepared as possible going into a job interview is knowing how best to answer the question, what sets you apart from other candidates interviewing for this same position? In fact, a quick Google search will land you results such as, quote, how to answer what is your greatest accomplishment, or how to answer what should I know that's not on your resume. And my favorite from a Business Insider article written a few years ago entitled, 10 Ways to Brag About Yourself Without Sounding Like a Jerk. Uh, That was my favorite title. In meditating on and praying over this week's Scripture And in relation to these articles, the thought occurred to me, if the Apostle Paul went in for a job interview to be a missionary or an evangelist, and the question was posed to him, what is your greatest accomplishment, or what sets you apart from other candidates interviewing from the same position, if we purely look at what he's already said in Scripture to be most likely what his knee-jerk response would be, it would be this. And we'll read this together in a couple minutes. Weakness, fear, much trembling, and my preaching is not in persuasive words of wisdom. That would be his response to that question. That's not very impressive, is it? If Paul was interviewing for that position, the interviewer would probably give Paul a look like, are you kidding me? That's how you want to answer that? Realize what look he must be giving, put his or her polite face back on, reply back to Paul with, well, thanks for coming in, we'll get back to you if we're interested in proceeding further, and as soon as Paul left, slip his resume into the trash can next to them. When Paul recalled his ministry with the Corinthians, he recounted to them that it was not impressive at all by human standards, in the way that humans would look at it, And that was the entire point. It wasn't supposed to be impressive by human standards. We're going to see how even in in God directing us to carry out his work, it's connected to what God had already told the prophet Samuel all the way back in the Old Testament. Samuel was himself carrying out a job interview process, in a way, when he visited the home of a man named Jesse, looking for who would uh, uh, fill the position of next king of Israel. When all the seemingly qualified candidates were met with nope, nah, and nah from God, Samuel was forced to ask Jesse if he had any other sons that might possibly meet the qualifications for the next king of Israel. This last son lacked all of the human expectations of what should be a part of the king position that he wasn't even thought of. He was left in the background uh, to care for the family's flock of sheep. 
When Jesse did call for him, and that last son named David was brought before Samuel, God told Samuel, yep, this is the one. And do you remember God's interview reasoning he gave to Samuel as to what he was actually looking at as far as qualifications? The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The last few weeks we've been talking about how God's wisdom and the way to God goes completely counter to anything the world has or ever will offer. It does not make any sense to the world. The world simply just does not get it. First of all, humanity cannot come to God on their own. No matter how moral they are, they simply cannot be good enough or do enough good things. God himself had to provide a way. But even in, 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 in the method, God did it in the absolutely wrong way. He came to earth as a peasant in a Roman oppressed land to serve and not be served and to ultimately die a tortuous death on the societally lowest form of execution available. That was not the way someone who was supposedly coined as the deliverer was supposed to do things. Everybody and their brother had their own opinion as to how this deliverer was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. And nowhere in that job description was humiliation, mockery, and crucifixion. Nowhere in there was any of that included. Even the target demographic of people for salvation made no sense to the world. You could have a resume a mile long with all your accomplishments and it still would not matter. You could have a list of references a mile long listing people who could gush about how good of a person you are and it still would not matter. You could answer the question, what sets you apart from every other candidate, with an answer that would take days to complete, including how functional you are and how good of a member of society you are, and it still would not matter. Why? Because at its foundation... Salvation, redemption, justification, and glorification have nothing to do with us. Nothing. That was the entire plan God set forth even before he created humankind. None of it would have anything to do with us, as we talked about last week, and it would have everything to do with God. God would pay for our salvation himself, and God would determine who could take part in it. And who did that include? Anyone, regardless of background, past, level of perceived goodness or badness, societal status, amount of money to their name, or how functionally to society they are. So just as God's wisdom is outside of what humans can come up with, understand, or think is fair or right in terms of the mode and method of salvation, that extends even to how God determined to spread the news about that and who he thinks is qualified to do it. Just like with everything else, it doesn't make any sense to the world. First of all, God could have spelled out the way to salvation from our sin and faith in Him through Jesus and the stars with simple numerically ordered steps or waited until now and had a 24-7 TV or radio station or YouTube channel or social media page that just cycled through all that information. Everyone here knows that the fastest way to get a news story out these days is certainly not to put it in the newspaper or even on a news website because nobody looks at that anymore. 
The fastest way to get a news story out these days is to post it on social media. If people determine it to be important enough, it'll go viral in a matter of minutes. And suddenly everyone in the world knows about it. So why didn't God just do that? Because that's all based on human wisdom. All of that is based on human wisdom. God's wisdom extends even past those limitations. Since salvation was for humans, it was won by God in human flesh to offer salvation to humans. So why wouldn't those humans called to faith in Him be the main vehicle for the news about that salvation? Since it's entirely for humans, it would need to exist as long as humans do and never go out of style or be a phased out trend or go the way of cassette tapes, CDs, and even MP3 players at this point. Beyond that, the message would have to be passed along rooted in a personal way of doing it. Think about it. The message would have to be passed along in a personal way of doing it. There will always be this disconnection from a news story shared via Facebook with the sharer's two cents about it as the caption. This is what I think about this article. There will always be the tendency to just keep right on scrolling, right? On the other hand, there will always be something meaningful about one person sharing their story of faith with someone else. There will always be something meaningful about that. That sticks with you. If you think about it, it was even God's grace in designing how His message of salvation would get out and touch each one of us, surviving even thousands of years later after the event and being that much more effective in us actually listening to it and putting our trust in it. One more act of God's grace. We see God's wisdom extending even beyond that design. And here's what I mean. How could a man who freely admits that he handles his job with weakness, fear, much trembling, and with zero human wisdom be a prime candidate for spreading such an important message? That's what we're going to take a look at today and how that directly affects us. So the first point that we come to in our passage today is the spotlight. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, you can ask a neighbor or, or flip to the table of contents and find it that way. I want all of us to see this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we read, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This directly connects to the general theme that Paul has already rebuked the Corinthian church for and will continue to address throughout this letter to them. As I keep mentioning, every week we take a look at this letter. Does anyone remember that if there was any reputation the Corinthian church had, what was it? Arrogant self-centeredness, right? If there was any reputation the Corinthian church had, it was arrogant self-centeredness. We've already talked about how that had fueled Paul's words to them in the beginning of this letter, that what he was grateful for with the Corinthians had nothing to do with the Corinthians themselves and everything to do with God's grace and calling them and preserving them in their faith. That also played a major part in the disunity that Paul had to address next. The basis for all of that was that God had turned everything 
the world held dear and liked to boast about completely on its head. In fact, as Paul talked about, God shattered all of the expectations humanity had for what should make up inclusion in heaven. None of those expectations had any place in God's plan, and that's exactly the way God had designed it. And what did God include in his plan is our only hope. We talked about this over the past couple of weeks and earlier in this message, but God took what the world considered foolish, what the world considered weak, base, despised, and the things that have no influence or worth in the world's eyes, and made them the main focus of his plan for salvation. Who the world despised, God had designed to be the center point of salvation, Jesus himself. Who the world saw as weak, base, dysfunctional, immoral, and past the point of being loved, were the ones Jesus spent most of his time with. And, when, and it's when we get to that point, when we have nothing left to look to except for God, that a lot of us will put that trust in his redemption. It's because of all this that I think God has a special place in his heart who have, for those who have been kicked away by this world. In short, the whole point of this was so that not one of us would be able to boast about anything in our lives except for the change that God is making in our lives. That point is carried over to what Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 2. It's as if Paul is saying, just as none of us have anything to boast about except for what God is doing in our lives, I can't even boast about how I came to you or what I did, portray, uh, what I did to portray the gospel message to you. I can't even boast about that. And here's why. Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's use of the word know here does not mean that he shut out everything else he had learned and checked his mind out at the door. The word used here is in the most basic sense of the word, and that is to be familiar with, to understand or realize something, or to know facts. You know information. But what Paul does mean by the use of this word is that he didn't want to distract himself with anything he could come up with in human wisdom to convey the gospel. He didn't want to distract himself with methods or attention-grabbing techniques or be able to boast about thinking the Corinthians put their faith in Jesus and that had anything to do with how well he had done anything. Instead, he had determined to only know, to only focus on, to only spend time on the pure gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he says in verse 2. And that's all he knew he needed. Jesus Christ and him crucified. He had determined to only be attentive to the message of salvation from sin, found in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the foundational hope that it offered. In other words, Paul didn't want himself or anything he had to offer to get in the way of the power of the message itself. In fact, this is what Paul did bring to the table. Verses 3, the beginning part of verse 4. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. That's what Paul did bring to the table. That's the very opposite of what you want in a candidate applying for a position, isn't it? 
That's not confidence. That's not inspiring. That doesn't show initiative. If Paul was applying for a position with the world, it would say, are you kidding me? Get yourself together, and then maybe we'll talk about it. To be direct, Paul is basically saying here in these verses, if your salvation did have anything to do with me, you'd be straight out of luck. You'd still have no hope. Frankly, none of us would. That's Paul's entire point when he says this. Paul's not making some observational statement here. Yeah, I remember I was uh, fear and much trembling. He's not making an observational statement here. As a cursory reading might imply, Paul is making a direct and strong point here, and that's this. Just as the way to salvation had nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, And just as the target demographic for salvation had nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, and just as the general vehicle to get that message across has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God, even our personal attempts at sharing the message of our faith in Jesus, and this is important, has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. And that's what brings us to our second point. We talked about the spotlight, what Paul wanted to focus on. And that was the gospel message and the gospel message itself. And secondly, we're going to talk about the strength. Paul says exactly this in the the rest of our passage this morning, the second part of verse uh, verse 4 into verse 5. but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The word translated as demonstrated in the NASB, NIV, and NKJV is properly proof in the Greek. That's what it really means. Proof. As is pointed out by one biblical scholar, in this context, other public speakers and philosophers in the Greco-Roman world would base the authenticity of what they were saying by providing proof based on philosophy and logic to back up their conclusions. But what is this system of authenticity based on? Human wisdom, right? Paul's system of authenticity had to be based on God's Wisdom. Would Paul, a mere human, be the best representative of the authenticity of God's message? No. Who would be? God himself. That would be the best representative of the wisdom of God. And so, Paul pointed out that he did not rely on human philosophy or the extent of human wisdom as proof to back up his message. Since he was conveying God's wisdom, the only proof he could offer was the proof of God himself working in that message with his power. How could one see that proof and therefore authenticity of the message that Paul bore? The Holy Spirit at work in those who called to faith in Jesus. That's the proof that Paul could offer. Not only that, but since Paul was so wanting in his own relaying of the gospel message, the proof would be the Holy Spirit doing anything with how poorly Paul told it. 
The proof would be anyone listening and actually putting their faith in it. Again, not because of Paul, but the exact opposite of any influence Paul had over it. Anyone even listening and actually putting their faith in it had nothing to do with Paul and everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, why did God design it to be this way? Exactly because of what Paul says here in verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. Why is that important? Because anyone basing belief in anything by how convincing the one speaking it was can be just as easily unconvinced about it. Someone else comes along with a better argument. Someone else comes along and is more convincing about the opposite belief. The power of God is the only thing strong enough to preserve us in our faith. If it was merely based on how good a preacher made it sound, then it would be meaningless. Our faith is not rooted in how convincing the gospel message is. Our faith is rooted in the power of God at work within the words of that message and sending His Holy Spirit forth to churn within the heart of the one hearing it. That's what our faith rests on and is rooted in. In the context of our passage this morning, Paul used that truth to show that the Corinthians had nothing to boast about themselves because he didn't even have any reason to boast about himself in bringing the message of salvation to them in the first place. To someone who takes pride in how well he or she can convey the message, the gospel message, that's a very challenging truth. Because why? If not even the great apostle Paul had any reason to take pride in the way that he portrayed the gospel, then none of us have that right to take pride in that. But what I think is more relevant to us as believers in Jesus today is the other side of the coin, but the same message. The other side of the coin is not pride, but rather fear. We fear talking to someone else about Jesus because we think we won't know the right words to say or think we'll mess it up or are fearful for how that person will take it and how that will affect the relationship moving forward. But remember what Paul freely admitted to the Corinthians. Even he came in fear and much trembling, but even that did not stop him from doing what he knew Jesus had commissioned him to do. Instead of that being his focus, Paul rested in the truth that if anything was going to happen in someone else's life, it was not going to be by his own doing. It was entirely in the Holy Spirit's hands. All he did was give the message and leave the convincing, the realizing, the eye-opening, the heart-churning, and faith-giving up to the Holy Spirit. See, what that does is that gives us great hope, strength, and power in tearing down the walls and the obstacles that we've put up as to why we don't want to tell someone else about Jesus. Just like what we talked about last week, someone actually following through with putting their faith in Jesus, even that has nothing to do with us. That has everything to do with God and is entirely God's 
job. See, we like to think of Paul strutting into any ancient metropolis with a megaphone-type booming voice, just oozing confidence in himself and his unparalleled speaking and reasoning skills. All he had to do was open his mouth and people hung on every word. It would be diff very difficult for someone not to throw themselves headlong into faith in Jesus, simply from the overwhelming power and confidence of Paul's public persona. But as we've seen, that simply wasn't the case at all. If talking about Jesus with someone else scares you to death, you're in very good company. Even the spiritual giant, the great apostle Paul, shook like a leaf when he shared the gospel with others. He already told us that. He admitted to that freely in verse 3. He was weak and trembled with fear. Now, does that sound like someone who is thoroughly confident in how well he spoke and how well he could convey the message of salvation? Does that sound like somebody like that? No, certainly not. Not in the least. Does that sound like someone who thought he had it all together when sharing the gospel with others? Not at all. Does that sound like someone who, in all honesty, was scared to death with himself and his own limitations? Absolutely. Does that sound like someone who was just like us and who, just like us, needed to know that anyone listening to him, internalizing the message and doing anything with it was completely up to the work of the Holy Spirit entirely? That frees us from that power of fear. That has no influence over us anymore. Will we still be scared and nervous? Of course. The Apostle Paul felt those exact same things. But like Paul recognized, others doing anything with this gospel message has nothing to do with us. And like Paul recognized, the proof is not even in how well you can prove the existence of God or the historical and spiritual authenticity of the death and resurrection of Jesus or the direct theological and salvific conclusions of that. The proof is what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and how much he's changing you. That's the proof. And so if that's the proof, what better way to start off a conversation about faith in Jesus than with that proof? Why start it off with anything else? You don't need to know a theology textbook front to back, but you do know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and what changes he's been making in you. That's what you do know. Now one could respond, well, what if I don't want to admit those weaknesses and areas that needed change? Well, God already addressed that when he had Paul write down the words, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's already addressed that. What we are most familiar with are the changes God is making in our lives. What we are most in tune with is being able to look back on our lives and see how far God has brought us and making us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So again, if that's the proof, what better way and what disarming way to start off a conversation about faith in Jesus than with that proof. 
It's very disarming to someone else when you start off with your shortcomings and what you're weak at and what God has done with that and all the growth that he's made in you in spite of those things. We are the way that God has designed his message to go forth into the world. Let me ask you this. Aren't you glad the person who shared the gospel with you didn't just keep their mouth shut and keep walking on by? Aren't you glad about that? God has commissioned each and every one of us to be the cracked jars carrying his message of salvation, redemption, and hope to others who need to hear it just as much as we needed to hear it. That's exciting. That's exciting. And as we have conversations about Jesus with others, we go with the confidence that if anything is going to happen in that person's life, it has nothing to do with how well we can communicate or how much theology knowledge we have or even how confident we pull ourselves off as. All we can do is share the pure gospel of God's love through the death and resurrection of Jesus and his transformation of us through his Holy Spirit. We go with the confidence that if anything is going to happen in that person's life, it has everything to do with God, and it will be entirely the Holy Spirit's work in their life. That frees us to go in the power of God and offer the hope of restoration to God, adoption into his family, and eternal security to one more person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of hope and power that give us freedom, that give us freedom from fear, that while we still may be nervous and fearful, that you've given us the freedom and the knowledge and the hope to know that all we have to do is share the pure gospel message and what you're doing in our lives. And you're going to do everything else. That's entirely up to you. That's the power of God at work in your message. So Lord, I pray that you would embolden us I pray that you would remove any obstacles that we may have set up to telling one more person about you and that we will go forth even today and talk to them about what difference you've made in our lives, what changes you've made in our lives, the hope that you've given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, may we be set on fire and go out into this community. You may use us as your mouthpiece to bring one more person to faith in you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.